Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Andrew Bolter of Vital Pursuit Athletics. If you've never checked out Andrew on social media, he shares a lot of unique and very applicable manners in which to advance training for athletes. We have a lot of interesting talking points today. Much of our focus is going to revolve around movement and how to seamlessly incorporate different movement variations in training. We discuss how he layers plyometric strength and speed training means in a manner that potentiates and leads to a positive training effect. Andrew also discusses how to build deceleration into training and when to build deceleration into training. We also talk about how to make informed decisions on when athletes will most likely benefit from specific training rather than more general means. I really enjoy Andrew and his social media account and all the different creative means that he showcases on it. So I was really excited for this conversation. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis. And today I'm excited to sit down with Andrew Bolter of Vital Pursuit Athletics. If you just start out by introducing yourself to the audience, kind of telling us a little bit about yourself. I found you through social media. We kind of started interacting with one another uh, and kind of just messaging back and forth. Eventually, I just kind of decided to get you on the podcast because I've really enjoyed a lot of the different content that I've seen you post up. Uh, it's, it's got a really heavy movement base in it, a lot of gate-centric type different things that I'm interested in myself and have studied a good bit here in the last couple of years. So if you'd start out by just introducing yourself, kind of talk about how you've grown throughout your own pursuit and path of knowledge. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jesse. I'm really looking forward to it. I really enjoy listening to your podcast and been learning a lot from it. So yeah, growing up, played a lot of different sports, baseball, track, rugby a little bit, and then tried to play rugby at the collegiate level, found it to be a little bit too hard and concentrated on school, ended up graduating with a bachelor's of science in uh, psychology. And when I finished school, I was kind of reflecting on, you know, where I wanted to go with things. And it kept coming back to movement. I've just always really gravitated towards it. And it was such a integral part of my life. So I figured, you know, if I can help teach other people about it. So that's kind of where I got started. I've been running Vital Pursuit Athletics for about six years now. Uh, it's gone through a lot of evolutions. Um, and, and its current iteration is really focused around gait cycle, posture, uh, how the nervous system really is governing all of that stuff, um, and also moving into sports performance. I, I have a, a wide variety of clients from kids with really severe scoliosis all the way to, you know, pro athletes. So, you know, that, that range of people has been fun to work with and really helped me develop my craft. It's always great to deal with different populations like me, myself being a you know school strength and conditioning coach at this time, even in, within that setting, a, a good uh, trainer is going to deal with such a wide profile of people that walk through the door, regardless of if you're at a school or if you're in another setting. So it's really fun because it pushes you right to, to uh, really find your boundaries and, and how you want to integrate different things, how I would start with someone who's extremely young, who has these certain uh, limitations, anatomical limitations, like you mentioned, yeah. or a pro athlete are going to be so vastly different, but it's so much fun because what does it do? Pushes you to learn. One of your philosophies I've noticed you have these different, I guess you'd say values or things you strive for. I saw that you said balance and strength are important. Awareness mm -hmm. and energy are important and agility and efficiency are also important. So uh, you can definitely tell that you lend yourself more to a more balanced approach. Uh, talking offline, we talked about, and I can also reiterate this, starting with compound movements 
and not going towards more, I guess, contralateral and, you know, fascial type things to where we're working through the body and being more efficient. Uh, I can speak to all those things myself. So I guess that, that changed really well to our first talking point. First question I want to ask is how you attempt to offer a more holistic version of training that emphasizes movement. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, I've always loved to learn and explore new concepts and systems. So I've always been trying to kind of find mentors in the space, pull information from them. And where I've eventually got to is like you said, this kind of holistic full body approach. I don't really think that you ever can do an isolated movement, even if it's a bicep curl, you're, you're still coordinating the whole body to make that one piece move. But the return on investment there, I think is a little bit lower than doing a movement that reflects movements that we do much more often in the day. And I think the, to me, the, the biggest priority is walking and running. Of course, I'm going to always look at breathing and uh, resting and active postures first, but in terms of how I'm working with somebody, we're always going to go through kind of a, a movement analysis first. So we'll do some sort of gait analysis, and then I'll have them do a couple of primary movements um, just to assess certain joint coordinations and, and nervous system coordination. So basic things like a plank, contralateral row, maybe some sort of step up. And I'm just kind of looking at some areas, foot and ankle integrity, scapular rib cage integrity, things like that. And that's really going to inform me in terms of where we go with which a lot of how I'm looking at training people is through uh, myofascial chains. Thomas Myers talks a lot about those. Um, actually, James Earls talks a lot about those as well. Just listen to that podcast. That one was great. So I'm looking at these large, basically, you know, chains of tissues that coordinate the movement. And I'm looking at the ones that seem most efficient for somebody. And then we're going to kind of try and build off of those. For a lot of people, it's a lot of the posterior chains that seem to be the most distorted. So we'll essentially work to refine those in some sort of kind of general physical preparedness style. As they progress, we might add in some more of the more compound linear lifts, depending on the demands of the athlete. Um, if it's just a regular client, I typically don't go there, but if they're an athlete needing to perform on the field, they do need some of that requisite strength, but we're really going to use a lot of contralateral three-dimensional movements to help prepare them a little bit better. Uh, as far as like through a PRI lens, like I've had a uh, fractal biomechanics on, he's, he's great, shares a lot of PRI influences. And like you can do something as simple as making someone stand in a split stance with something in your hand. And, you know, we were talking about the breath, the inhale, the exhale. We were talking about how that would act actually tax the core and other areas of your body better than some of these other uh, things that we attempt to do with core. We crunch it up. We do all these other things. But if we're focusing on gait, if we're focusing on movement, which all sporting uh, actions are, uh, then, you know, that's going to be more beneficial because you're working on shortening and lengthening, inhale, exhale, different parts of your body. So I'm hearing some of those things kind of stick out with you talking there. Uh, let's talk about like if you do find some with, uh, with limitations, such as major limitations, how would you uh, advance them throughout time? So how would you regress them and then begin to advance them and layer them and build them up? You can even choose if you'd like a particular uh, issue that you've seen with uh, clients. Yeah, that's a really good question. Obviously, it's it's contextual to the client, but yeah, one client comes to mind, a young girl. She's she's now is 13, but 
really severe scoliosis. So a really extreme example. Uh, she's now playing volleyball and enjoying that, which is cool to see. But when we started, it was really working to get her to a neutral standing posture or as close to that as she could, which had a lot to do with breathing mechanics. Um, so a lot of stuff starting with her on the ground, on her back, uh, working on diaphragmatic breathing. And from there, we were progressing to a lot of things where we're kind of trying to create a counter rotation or a counter torsion to her uh, scoliotic curves. So a lot of that looked like contralateral pressing movements. I use a cable machine a lot for especially some of the more corrective sling work. As we've progressed further from that, we've added more complex stepping routine, stepping and pressing routines, stepping and rowing routines, um, as well as starting to get her to understand how to load her body dynamically. So doing uh, deceleration work and like depth, uh, depth jumps and things like that, where she's dropping from a height and actually loading and organizing her body the right way. You know, it's always a work in progress with those kind of people. But again, most people need some posterior chain work. So it's been, you know, helping her find stability in a hinge or like a split hinge, kind of like a acceleratory position. Um, and also foot and ankle strength. I, I find a lot of, uh, especially kids now have really weak feet and ankles. So among many of the things that I've learned from Cal Dietz, um, some of his foot and ankle isometric routines have been really, really beneficial for kids building arch strength and, and lower leg integrity. I'm always looking for drills that are the drill itself is going to elicit a good response from the nervous system and from the body itself. So the less cueing I have to do, the better. If I'm finding that I have to really cue a ton of things, I'm probably going to look for a different drill. You have some good examples there. Like I do like, you know, that it is contextual and it's going to change based off of each client. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. a blue, the blueprint is different for every single person, because even if you find the same issue amongst uh, people, if something else might be driving it, something that, that kind of stuck out to me in our first couple of talking points, you do seem to have somewhat of a neurological uh, viewpoint as well. I feel like you're offering there. And is there any point in time where you would offer different uh, neurological interventions? Is that something that you attempt to do in your training, especially if some of these things are looking or rearing their head out, you're looking, they have movement issues. Uh, how do you approach that in a neurological sense? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, my, my main neurological training background comes from Z health. I've done a couple of levels of Z health, um, which is really like a neurology of movement, um, certification, super cool, very detailed. Um, what I find difficult with some of those techniques is practical ap application, but yeah, I do use nervous system based interventions sometimes, especially with concussions or trauma. Um, I'll assess vestibular and visual function, just really basic drills like uh, convergence and divergence things, as well as some visual tracking drills. I don't go super deep into uh, nervous system first movements. I, like I said, I like, kind of like to use the context of the movement itself to elicit a uh, nervous system response, because at the end of the day, the nervous system is working all the time. And so if you're getting a drill, that's getting a good response. It's definitely stimulating the nervous system in a good way. Same thing with breathing. So yeah, there, there definitely are times where I use specific neurological drills. It's typically after trauma concussions, especially, but otherwise 
I'm using movement-based approach to kind of elicit change in the nervous system, if that makes sense. Movement is proprioceptive. So Mm -hmm. it is stimulating the the nervous system the whole time. So, I mean, even our next talking point is isometrics here in a minute. Isometrics really are a great way to to show different joint angles and to get your nervous system more open and facilitated to those different parts. Like Cal Dietz, you mentioned him. I mean, just taking off your shoes uh, and putting him on something, he puts them on like rough pebbles and things. Those are different proprioceptive means that drive that uh, stimulus into the body and you get that sensory feedback, which we're needing. It's going to drive it up into the brain. So just simple things like that. You'll be amazed, right? That the small little changes you can make in training that would drive those things. So yeah. looking at this next talking point, I'm a huge isometric fan. I'm a huge Dietz fan, as, as you said, you are as well. So I notice a lot of potentiation type clusters in your training. And I also notice a lot of isometric means. So let's talk about how you utilize isometrics in your training. Are there different ways you utilize it throughout different periods of your training or with different training ages uh, and how you attempt to build on ISOs in a complementary manner? I definitely use isometrics in a couple of different contexts. So I like to use them as kind of like an assessment and rehab prehab tool kind of alluded to that earlier with, I have essentially like a foot and ankle isometric routine, not very uh, different than cows. There's some differences, but it's very similar uh, where they're essentially holding various single leg positions uh, with their foot, either neutral with the heel hovering or in a, a large amount of plantar flexion. So I'll use those to kind of build requisite strength and stiffness in the feet and ankles. I have recently been playing around with overcoming isometrics and uh, like potentiation clusters, like kind of French contrast style combinations. Those are movements that I haven't really been experimenting with, with my athletes yet, because they've been a little bit newer to me. So I've been personally utilizing them. I'm really liking the training effect. So when I have a couple of my, my, uh, higher level athletes finish their seasons will probably work to incorporate those more. But yeah, I mean, isometrics give people with compensatory patterns, a lot of time in those positions to really kind of refine and uh, kind of neurologically map out those areas, whether there was a trauma in that uh, position, or uh, they have some distortions that are really pulling them into a poor position. So a lot of like kind of split squat stuff, single leg stuff. I find it extremely helpful for people to help them find the right kind of balance of tension between anterior and posterior chain. So right now with a lot of my clients and athletes, it's more of kind of a therapeutic or corrective of training effect. But for some of them, I'm starting to go towards utilizing an isometric phase. I do my, my periodization is somewhat based off of triphasic. So there will be, uh, you know, two to four weeks where we're spending focusing on isometric portion of movements. Yeah. All that's good stuff. And it, it isometrics are, have so much variety. There's so many different things that you can do. Read a really good article from Alex Natera, who's especially, he's like the isometric specialist, essentially okay. him talking about pulling, uh, versus pulling and pushing isometrics, like pulling yourself into it, you're yielding isometrics and you're pushing mm. in the different responses that you get from that. You know, one of them, you're uh, decelerating. The other one, you're trying to accelerate. One of them's more con- concentric in nature and it's passing that, you know, through your body. You're, it's the idea that I'm trying to overcome something. Uh, so what we choose to do with isometrics and the way that we layer that, uh, can, you can really get something special out of it. Like for myself, you wouldn't think that holding a yielding isometric would make you feel better the next day. But after I've had a really hard day of training, 
I go through my uh, isometric protocol and the next day my legs are ready to go again. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. I tell kids that all the time. They're like, wait, we're going to do this. It hurts so bad uh, in the moment. I'm like, dude, tomorrow you're not even going to be sore. I've, I've told them that. And then they come up the next day. I'm like, are you sore? And they're like, uh, not like whenever I lift weights. No, I'm not sore. So it's crazy, right? Uh, the, the different responses that you can get from that. I like all the different sensory. Like you said, there's a lot of different sensory input from that because the muscle is continuously, the muscle and tendon is continuously uh, going to be sharing information, passing it along the nervous system. And you're learning to get into those positions, right? Uh, the, the deeper uh, split squats. I like it for drivers because I see a lot of spinal drivers and, and that might be positive, but I just see it at the expense of people's hips and the way that they move their hips and movement. I see a lot of kids that'll immediately curve over and drive through the spine. If I do a split squat with a kid or like an RDL, I can immediately identify those things I've found um, in, in my experience. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I see the same stuff with kids. And like you said, the, the isometrics, you can make them pretty intense. And, and because there's not that eccentric phase to the movement, you, you're not creating the same muscle, muscle trauma and they come back the next day and they're ready to go again, which is a really powerful tool. Absolutely. Uh, but what are some different things that you utilize to help you look at different portions of sprint mechanics and try and analyze whenever kids might be less than optimal in certain positions or in phases? You know, I definitely try to break down, you know, my speed work into acceleration focus days and max speed focus days. Uh, there's a couple different tools that help me look for specific positions or indicators there. So I use slow motion video every day. Like my phone is just filled with slow motion video. It's such a powerful tool. And for, for somebody that doesn't have a huge sports performance lab, it's one of the easiest ways for me to gather data. So I'll get a ton of slow motion video. And then from there, I'll be looking at, you know, a, a handful of joints and positions. And so I'm looking at the foot and ankle complex is you know, how stiff is it? Is there a lot of pronation, too much pronation moving up the chain? I'm looking at, you know, in acceleration, I'm looking at how high the feet are off the ground. Is they're moving through that acceleration phase? Are they rising smoothly or are they popping up at a certain time? Spinal position, arm drive, you know, and then top speed, again, I'm looking at powerful front side mechanics is the foot striking right under the hip. You know, there's a, there's a handful of indicators that I'm looking at within gait cycle. And what can be difficult with video is even in slow motion, it's happening pretty fast. So I do utilize kinograms too. Um, I think Altus is probably one of the, the best people to learn about kinograms. They actually have a free ebook about it. Uh, it's really, really nice and breaks it down, but it's essentially, you're just taking snapshots of major phases of the gait cycle. And they'll typically do it from the side, um, but it lets you find these kind of landmarks. And then you can start to look at um, movement quality and progression from month to month for kids as they're going through that. So like I said earlier, like I, I try not to over cue kids when they're doing stuff and especially try to not give them internal cues uh, when we're working on speed work. That's kind of the stuff that we'll work on after the speed work based on what I'm seeing there. So I'm not, I'm not sure if that fully answered your question. I'm happy to dive deeper into that a little bit. 
No, I just I just have a couple things uh, standing out to me. You know, some of them uh, directly tied to it. Other ones there. You you made some good points. I liked what I heard. The kinogram thing, like uh, Coach John Garish that I've had on, and uh, maybe you've listened to him before. He does really well with kinograms, and I, I really like looking at them as well, looking at all those yeah. different phases. They are a, a really exceptional tool to examine the different areas of gait. Uh, one thing I was wondering, just stationary actually here in just a second, because I tend to, you're, you're mentioning feet a lot and I, I'm a big uh, foot person and I had that big shift a couple of years ago myself. Yeah. So uh, do you tend whenever you're looking at kids or your clients as a whole, do you yeah. tend to see people that are more overly pronated or supinated whenever they're standing stationary? Or is that something that you've noted? Yeah, um, typically overly pronated. Um, I get a ton of people that come in and go, oh yeah, I have flat feet. I, I do actually have one really good friend who structurally has flat feet and a very high level athlete. Uh, so those people exist, but most people it's a functionally flat or collapsed arches. So I think that's more common. What I will say, and like PRI really helps kind of uh, flush this out or elucidate it more is there typically is a torsion in the hips where there's some sort of kind of rotation and twist. So for me, most people are going to have one foot that's a little more collapsed and more pronated while the other one's a little more supinated. But in general, both of the feet definitely seem to be more towards the collapsed. I do have some people with really high rigid arches and over supination, but that's, that's definitely the exception. So yeah. do you think that footwear or perhaps previous training uh, could, could affect that? Because I've always, you know, been familiar with uh, pronation and supination again is going back to like overcoming versus yielding uh, in regards to that. So do you think that there's anything that is in regards to footwear that might be common amongst this? Do you think it's that they wear bad shoes all day? Do you think it's um, perhaps a training thing? I, obviously we can't answer every question, but what do you think are some of the drivers of that? Yeah, those are good questions. I mean, definitely with kids, I think kids seem to be increasingly more sedentary. So I think just the lack of loading and movement of the feet is a big piece. I think footwear is definitely problematic. Um, you know, you've got overly supportive and overly cushioned shoes. And then for the athletes, they they're wearing those all day. And then they're putting on a very compressive cleat typically, um, or like a basketball shoe really restrictive to the ankle, which is fine. But, you know, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's obviously multifactorial. I think the lack of movement is huge. I think having kids wear shoes earlier and earlier is also problematic. I think letting little kids be barefoot as long as possible is really critical. So, you know, if an, if a client or athlete's comfortable with it, we'll do as much of our training barefoot or in socks as possible. And like I said, I'll always make them go through that basically a foot and ankle isometric routine. Um, there's actually a really interesting, uh, guy out there who, his, his name is eluding me right now, but his Instagram handle is secret of athleticism. Um, and he, he basically talks about a mechanism of fascial more. Chong Z. I think he's been on. Yeah. 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 He's a, he's an interesting dude. He can, I think he can be a little bit polarizing, but he's very smart. And I, I really like, uh, his concepts. I think there's some real value to it. So for some of my more advanced people, we'll talk about developing, a that hyper arc or enhancing that, that, uh, fascial tensioning mechanism. But yeah, I mean the, the feet and ankles, like you said, I had a little bit of a paradigm shift with that a couple of years ago where I realized, you know, if the feet and ankle are weak, you're just not going to be able to optimize the amount of force you're putting into the ground, whether you're just a regular person or you're an athlete trying to be as fast as possible. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I like something else you put out there. I've put it on several podcasts about over-queuing. There's an epidemic of over-queuing, be it in the weight room, be it in on the field. I just hear over-queue, over-queue, and especially like fast movements like running, which we're alluding to right now. You can't solve it then. And then in all honesty, whenever you pull the kid aside and you tell them before they get another rep, all these different cues, well, then they're not doing things naturally. And I think that anybody uh, that really is into movement, as we've alluded to, and I know that you are, you want it to be naturally facilitated as much as possible. Now, if their natural tendency is something that's dangerous, then that's whenever we have to change things. But you want it to be natural uh, because it's it's just going to flow better. You know, they're going to solve problems themselves. It's going to be more athletic in nature uh, and probably safer because the body was designed extremely well and it's, uh, I guess, evolved extremely well as well, right? Uh, so what are some of the different drills that you could tend to use that could maybe naturally facilitate things? Because if you don't want to over cue, you either show through video, like you've alluded to, or you can bring back some drills and running is extremely rhythmic as I've talked about on other podcasts. So how do you attempt to bring in that rhythm, that coordination? What are some different type drills that you use for running and uh, mechanics? You know, I I think a lot of drills that, people are exposed to from a really young age when they're going through their sports uh, that are labeled as warm up. I think are extremely valuable. And I think it's how you frame them. So there's not, it's not these crazy things. We're not reinventing the wheel. I really, really like marching, skipping, bounding um, those kind of movements. I think it's really in how you frame those to the kids, especially, you know, so I really don't call those warm up movements. I call them, you know, speed skill work or skill work. Uh, but I find that marching and skipping, you know, and for some of the higher level athletes, like different types of dribbles, um, you know, and straight like snap downs, or I think, um, like Cal would call those, uh, show times, those kind of drills for whatever reason can be really self-organizing for kids. You don't really have to worry about where the foot's tracking or how high the leg is recovering or anything. You know, if the spine is looking really wobbly, you know, you can use a PVC pipe or something to help create a little bit of spinal rigidity. Um, but I find a ton of benefit to some of those pretty rudimentary skills, Um, I also have like kind of a rudiment hop series, which Altus talks about, and I've learned a lot from them. So I'll use these little kind of low, low intensity hopping sequences too, to kind of get the nervous system fired up, but it also seems to refine foot strike and it, it, uh, teases out their natural foot strike pattern. And then we kind of build off of that. So I, I really like the, the marching and skipping, especially because like you said, running is very rhythmic and coordinated and the sequencing needs to be right. And I think that those drills can build that a lot. You know, if somebody is really, really out of whack, some of the contralateral drills like on the um, cable machine or step ups and things like that can also build rhythm. But if they can do it more dynamic first, that's where I'll go. Yeah. And we're going to get into this in just a moment. Running is reflexive. I've said it, you know, tons and tons of time. We can make things really fancy and scare people off. Running is reflexive. And a lot of the uh, things that you utilize that we're going to talk about here in just a second, to me, are extremely reflexive, especially with that switch mechanism uh, that you see in running. Uh, And, you know, I've seen it with a lot of friends, Bosch type stuff. A lot of the things I've seen you do uh, as far as like overhead movements and a switch being involved or plyometric means and a switch being involved or with uh, I love one. I I noted the other day you did like an accelerated lunge with a wall press back. 
And I thought that was great, man, because it was like teaching you like to really drive and was getting, a you know, a great shin angle. And it was really chaining all that different stuff together. So I've seen that part. But the other thought I want to throw out there before we kind of shift to some of this other stuff is kids and adults and whoever you work with, they don't understand the intensity typically that you are asking them to do something with like bounding. I swear to God might be my, my downfall in coaching sometimes. Right. <laughs> because bounding is, um, is skipping to most people, you know, and I, I get out there 30 something years old and like, I'm driving at home. Like I'm doing bounding with like four different groups of people. I go home and my, my legs are killing me because I've gone through <laughs> four different groups. I'm like, no, follow me because the intensity, they don't understand it. Right. Like marches are a completely different intensity. Uh, Skips that you bring up the intensity. Bounding, it goes way up, right? And even bounding, there's different types of intensity. So I find most often we can get all fancy. We can talk reflexive. We can talk the nervous system, which is very important. That's how I coach. But they don't understand intensity. And if they don't understand intensity, there's no way they can coordinate something to actually drive the way they need to. Uh, That's at least been my experience. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And actually, I was just talking with a client earlier today about it, where I think you see some higher level people doing some of the, especially on Instagram, like it's so easy to watch the high level athletes do some of these drills and you're like, okay, yeah, it's looking pretty easy for them. Like you said, the reality is the intensity is extremely high. The loads and the rate of force development are extremely high. Yeah. Bounding, <laughs> bounding is really, really demanding. Even skipping with the right intention can be really demanding. So, yeah, I think getting people to feel that versus telling them it's intense is is the challenge. And that's why I like some of those rudiment plow metrics, because just to be fast off the ground, you get a, there's a certain sense of organization and rigidity that you need to make those happen. So that's why I'll do those before some of the speed skill work, because it kind of gets their, you know, nervous system, but also cognitively gets them realizing like, okay, there's a certain level of kind of coordination and power I need to be doing to, to make these happen. Absolutely. So uh, one talking point before we kind of go to decelerations and then some of these other different variations you like to use in the weight room, I've noted that you use, I guess it's called Aryan run insoles. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the metrics and feedback you're able to get from those insoles. Uh, and then also how that might inform programming. I don't know if you use it for the people you train or if you're using them personally, but if you're using them personally, how does that help you program for yourself, for your needs? The Aryan insoles are really cool. Currently, I'm only using them with myself because I just didn't have the capital to buy a bunch of insoles. It's, it's pretty difficult to use one pair for multiple people because you essentially need to get the right size and put it in whatever shoe you're utilizing. So what they essentially are is a insole with uh, different pressure uh, sensors in them all along the foot. So they'll give you a ton of metrics, including uh, like your foot strike pattern, balance left to right, uh, cadence, speed, distance traveled, uh, vertical impulse. Uh, I think they're a pretty new company and it seems like they're they're always kind of tweaking the app and, and adding different functionality from the data that it's gathering. It's a really powerful tool. I'm, I really, really like using it. Probably the most valuable things that I get from it is, is the step rate or the cadence. You know, it helps you try and stay in that 165 to 180. We're talking longer runs, 5K, 10K, that kind of stuff. 
as well as the foot strike pattern, I think is really interesting. So what I'll do. And so, so how that informs my training is I'll typically accumulate mileage over the weekend and I'll do a lot of my own training during the week. I have a four day split that I'll go through in the weekends. I'll accumulate some longer distance mileage, but I'll utilize what my foot strike pattern looks like to inform kind of where I want to be adjusting, you know, whether it's isometric positions or cues that I'm thinking about during my training to optimize that foot strike. Again, I'm not trying to change my foot strike or somebody else's, but I'm looking to create uh, feedback loops that make it feel the most efficient. Um, so I really, it's really cool to see the left to right balance there. Um, that's probably the most valuable thing that I get from the, the insoles. The accuracy of the insoles can be not great. Sometimes that's probably something that they can update with the software. Um, and actually more recently, I also got a stats sports, like GPS pod. So I think like a lot of soccer players are using that, but it's essentially just a GPS pod. You put in like a little sports penny and it'll track speed distance travel, similar stuff to Arians, but it's a little more geared towards, I think, speed work. Uh, so that's been also a really valuable tool to kind of inform, uh, how effective acceleration and, uh, max speed days and my periodization are working. That's another thing where I'm kind of testing it on myself before I go ahead and buy a bunch for, for my athletes. But yeah, I mean, data is really, really powerful and it's getting cheaper to get. So it's, it's been fun to play around with those things and, and see how they inform and reflect some of the, the periodization I'm working with. So as far as that foot strike pattern part you're talking mm -hmm. about, because that's definitely interesting, um, kind of talk a little bit about how, how that, inf that data or information is shared. Does it show you like the overall pressure? Does it show you how the pressure uh, of the foot strike kind of, I guess, moves throughout the entire uh, gait cycle? What are we looking at there? Like whenever it's on a step, can you look at individual steps or how, how is this all kind of coalescing, yeah. I guess? Yeah, it's, you know, I'll do my best to describe it over – uh, audio, but yeah, you're essentially getting a pressure map of the foot, you know, based on a certain amount of sensors, it's probably not hundred percent accurate, but it's pretty good. So it'll, it will show you, um, how the force moves through the foot. So it'll show you initial impact, you know, through, um, stance phase and toe off. So it will, and it's just showing you that through like a, basically a progression of where it's moving through the foot. Actually, I hold it up here for you to see. I don't know if you can see. Yeah. And it could show you if you were overly pronated or supinated or spend too much time within a particular it, it, uh, range it of it. Right. It so, definitely could. Yeah. And then you could make programming decisions about that. Like one thing I said about isometrics earlier, I did not say, excuse me, is like the split squat isometric. I love to use different hold positions, like where I'm holding a weight to mm -hmm. force me onto the outside edge or the inside edge or to more forefoot or rear foot dominance, because really I'm looking for balance. If all I ever do is stay within that same range, well, then I'm going to find a weakness, a weak link essentially. So I really like to use isometrics as well. Like you're talking about to find like, where am I inadequate with my foot? So I have people in GPP that they can't even find a tripod foot, you know? Right. So we get, we got to start there first, but I'm just saying I've used isometrics a lot to say, okay, well let's hold here to get us to, to a more pronated phase or let's hold here for a more supinated phase. Um, have you used the insoles to, to kind of drive that particular type of program? That's, that's exactly what I do. So like, if I see, we'll just use my own, you know, personal compensation. So I'll definitely over supinate on my left foot. So if it's a, you know, if it's a run that I'm feeling a little bit off and I look at the, uh, the, the loading data and it's showing that I'm really loading the lateral aspect of the foot, 
when I go through my isometric routines during the week, I'll make sure that I'm feeling pressure through the big toe and through the, you know, through equally through the whole ball of the foot. Um, and then when I go out for my next runs, I'll, I'll see if that's reflected. I'm not actively thinking about those things while I'm running. There's a couple of external cues I'll think about, but it's not foot strike. And I'll see if those things, uh, change it. And if they did great, I'll kind of, you know, pocket that for later. Um, so yeah, I mean, you definitely get a cool kind of test retest information with the insoles. So last question, and I'd like to go over to, de to deceleration. So uh, as far as with the insoles, do you feel like they would be effective with, with quicker sprint-based things? Or are you saying you tend to be more of a distance runner, it sounds like? Could you use these for shorter bursts, uh, you know, like a 60-meter, 40-yard uh, dash, 10-meter uh, flies, 20-meter flies? Could you use them? Do you feel like you can get uh, adequate data from them? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, I think you probably could. Um, I don't know if that was their intention when they make these. I think that they were intending them for longer distance. Um, I'd be I've interested been, just to walk in them all day if you want me to be completely honest with you. Because, yeah. you know, you're, the way you, you walk is going to drive the way you run. I don't care what people say. I mean, you got to start back and regress it back, right? So interesting piece of equipment, no doubt. And uh, I'd be interested to study a little bit more. I have looked at them. So I've, I saw you were using them, totally interested in them, had to ask about it. Uh, one thing I realized and I really have enjoyed about the programming that I see from you, I see you program a lot of decelerations. Uh, and that's something I can appreciate because I feel like anybody that kind of gets into triphasic begins to realize the beauty of deceleration and how it is necessary uh, if you really want to be a well-rounded athlete. So if you could, can you talk about how you tend to include decelerations? Uh, and you can also talk about how you would insert that as far as landing mechanics, depth jumps, or any other forms of plyometrics that you choose to use as well. I really like deceleration work and especially with some of my youth athletes it's a really big focus uh before we're really opening up to top speed work we'll definitely still do top speed work but we'll have a big emphasis on the quality of their deceleration so just like with acceleration just like with max speed i'm going to take a lot of video um, and just look for things that are jumping out at me i i do think that there's some individuality to how people look when they're decelerating, but I'm looking at overall fluidity um, and the ease of the motion happening. So, and, and I'll also ask the athlete how it feels. And if, if it's feeling okay for them, you know, and something's looking a little different than another person, I'll, I'll let it be. Um, you know, I think the biggest things is that the feet tracking fairly straightforward and nice spinal position and they're kind of sitting back into it. I, I don't want them feeling joints, you know, when they're decelerating. So that's the first thing, if they're feeling good with those, um, that that's awesome. I definitely want to feel like they're using posterior chain to help decelerate a little bit, um, as well, especially glutes. So we'll do deceleration days typically built into one of the acceleration days. Um, and, and we'll do something where, They'll decelerate in like five meters or 10, 10 meters. Some of my more advanced people, the deceleration will turn into like a change of direction drill. But for a lot of people, just focusing on the actual deceleration mechanics and quality of that movement is really beneficial for them. So a lot of times we'll go through the speed skill work and the rudiment plyometrics, and then we'll, we'll work into the deceleration work uh, kind of blended with the accelerations. Yeah. In terms of compensation, I definitely, again, I'm looking at making sure that the, the knees and the feet are tracking, you know, 
in a fairly straight line and that there's not like a lot of crazy overpronation. Rationale here, like something that I've grown with, stop before go, man. Like if, if you told me a car could not stop, but it can go as fast as you want it to, we're going to end up in a crash. And, uh, you know, that's something, again, that I could appreciate that Cal kind of made me realize and Dan Fickers also mentioned, especially like yes. as far as like depth jumps. Uh, you know, land before you jump. And people, I remember, you know, whenever I first started doing this, people were like, wait, you just want me to land? I'm like, absolutely. I just want you to land and I want you to land properly. And, and then, you know, we'll get up and we'll go after we can do that because we could talk neurological about that. We could talk, you know, bio, biomechanics as far as that. But uh, yep. as far as I, I don't want to get in a car that will not stop confidence in being able to stop at a high rate of speed. So why would I want an athlete to be doing that? So I spend a lot of my early GPP uh, phases going through decelerations, uh, yeah. you know, depth jumps, things such as that. It all makes sense. Uh, so somewhere I'd like to jump that we talked about earlier, this reflexive nature of sprinting. I really appreciate the reflexive nature that you're driving into a lot of your weight room uh, needs, because if you were to ask me, what's one of the things that really detracts from what we do in the weight room often, it's the fact that we put our nervous system in a straight jacket and we don't keep it fresh. We don't uh, apply variety. Uh, and I see that with a lot of your exercise choices. So if we could focus for a minute on the switch movements that I've seen you use in plyometrics, metrics and presses and uh, why you choose to utilize that as a format in your training. Yeah. Yeah. I think you kind of alluded to it. You know, I think there's a time and a place for, you know, heel down heavy compound lifts. I think especially for higher level athletes, there's a certain level of strength that is important and it has a protective effect, but I think there's definitely a strong enough there's a point where you get strong enough. And I also think that if you're only prioritizing those kind of more heavy linear lifts, you just get slower. Um, you're, you're not recruiting the faster twitch fibers and the rate of force development is typically uh, too slow to, to emulate field work or sprint work. Um, so like, especially some of those like kind of more plyometric switching movements, I think, Again, I don't think the rate of force development is going to equal field work, but it's a lot closer. And there's, there's a coordination effort there, and there's a sequencing and timing effort there that I think more closely replicates some of the work that you're going to see on the field. You, know, you mentioned some of the work of Franz Bosch. Um, I, I've read a couple of his books. I, I appreciate some of the things he's doing. Um, you know, and I kind of took some of those concepts and some of the concepts I've learned from functional patterns and kind of tried to combine them into something that I saw as maybe a little bit more return. Uh, so a lot of times he'll do like a bilateral press or jerk or something like that with a switch of the legs where I prefer to do like a landmine where it's a single arm pressing um, kind of a thing. And yeah, there's a lot of speed and coordination involved in that. There's also a lot of requirements for ankle stiffness, which <laughs> if you haven't figured out by now, I, I think is very important. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll definitely do those movements as a good portion of the weight room or strength training side of my uh, training with athletes and myself, you know, we'll spend probably well, one, you know, we'll have one heavy compound movement for a day and the rest of the movements will be a little bit more dynamic in nature. It depends on the phase that we're in, but you're going to see a lot more kind of contralateral or three-dimensional movement than you will a heavy deadlift or a back squat or something like that. Yeah. And I can appreciate all that too, with you being more like a, a trainer at a gym, 
it's difficult. I can speak at like a school setting to have some of these more fancy movements. Now I do it. I have brought some, <laughs> some Bosch tendencies into the weight room, but it's, it's much more difficult. Um, I tend to like try and bring simple cross crawl mechanisms into my weight room to keep the kids fresh because like, you know, neurology has kind of been in this uh, talk a little bit here, like the brain bilaterally dealing with things in a bilateral nature all the time. I know you can agree with this because you're so gate centric, but you're not doing that bilaterally. Uh, and if all we're teaching our body is to move and apply force bilaterally, then we're in trouble uh, in the long run, especially if you want to be dynamic. I also like the variability that you're bringing to it. You said you have a compound day and then we're going to come with something that's going to keep us reflexive and moving appropriately. Like with Franz Bosch, one of the biggest things I've taken away from him is to bring chaos to the system occasionally and provide variability that, that will typically build more efficient movers in the long haul. Yeah, exactly what you said. I, I really, I like the variability. I think that that helps keep it fresh for people, but I also think it challenges the brain to coordinate a little bit differently, you know, and again, the movements aren't going to perfectly mimic what you see on the field, but if you do a lot of different kind of contralateral variations, sometimes those certain movements will tease out a compensation. That's not extremely obvious on the field or when they're doing something more linear. So it just gives you more data to work with too. If somebody's really struggling to coordinate let's say that landmine press, you know, with switching of the legs, that, that gives me some information about where we want to go with them and, and work to refine some of those things. But I can definitely appreciate in a larger setting, it can be, <laughs> it can maybe Wanting. take too much time <laughs> to, to teach those things. And that's where I'll use, like, I really like like dynamic step up movements because you just get a lot of power and fast development. Um, I do too, man. That's, that's what I've taken the most from is using like simple light uh, dumbbell step-ups where they're driving onto the box. I'm like, this is not our typical GPP step-up, maybe not even have a leg drive. I'm like, it takes great intent to me. Yes. I always tell them to drive violently through the ground, like, because it teaches great intent with that switch action and loading it contralaterally with the drive kind of really teaches you to bring the arms to like if I was brought any Bosch things in, that was one thing I really brought in because I thought, oh, this is simple. I can show this quickly. So I can agree with that 100. Moving to our last talking point, I think it applies really well. This is a little bit more of a general question, but we've been talking about reflexive training. We've been talking about switches here lately. And you've also talked about having the larger compound days, hills through the ground. Uh, I feel like a really large uh, paradigm, I guess you would say, within training where people really focus, I guess maybe a dichotomy that exists within training that's that is a really big arguing point is like specificity versus general prep. In training, in your opinion, how long do you think people need to keep it general? And then what are some of the signs you feel like indicate athletes are ready for more specific means like we just referenced? Yeah, I love that question. And this is like probably one of the things that I think about the most often. Me too. Um, the simple answer is that it kind of depends, but where, what I would say is like definitely in the off season, I prioritize more general like GPP and three-dimensional and contralateral movement where I'm kind of just looking for quality. And for me, I usually have smaller groups or individuals, so we can really hone in on like particular areas of weakness for them. So yeah, we're, we're doing contralateral work. We're doing general core stability, dynamic core work. That's early off season. If everything's progressing well, as we move closer to the season, we'll start adding load, more speed, more power, and potentially more specific movements as well. Sports specific movements. At an individual level, when somebody's ready to move from that general phase, what I'm looking for is just a general coordination, fluidity, and kind of just 
their reflexive organization is good. So I'm, I'm not seeing a big energy leak at the foot or at the scap, uh, at the scapular complex or at the hip. So everything's looking like it's moving coherently. I can see the energy moving through the chains really easily. And some of those movements that maybe started out being very challenging for them are looking faster, more powerful, more effortless. That's when I'm going to start moving towards more sports specific movements. And if things get teased out in a sports specific movement, a certain athlete may have one day a week or a phase where we go back to some of those general prep to make sure that they're staying uh, injury resistant during their training. You know, we all have those couple athletes who they move perfectly. They're super fluid. They'd succeed no matter what kind of training they're doing. And those guys are great. But for most of us <laughs> that don't aren't blessed with that kind of movement capacity, there's probably always going to be a time where we need some of those tune up. So if I'm hearing about a joint is flaring up or a shin splint or something like that. I might build back in a day where there's more general, uh, general capacities, but in general, we'll prog progress to general to specific as the season approaches and in season we'll have, it'll be kind of more of a weekly undulating. And in terms of, you know, sports specific movements, you know, what, what kind of benefits do I think? I think those sports specific movements can allow the athlete to, hone in on certain skills that maybe they need to develop more or that are really critical for their particular sports. So I'll just use, I have a really high level golfer right now. So I'll use him as an example. He came to me with a very technically sound swing, uh, very fast, very powerful. Uh, but his, his separation between his hips and his ribs was suboptimal. Um, and he could feel that intuitively and he could feel that he wasn't able to load one hip. So we utilized a lot of drills that helped uh, him feel and map what that separation felt like, um, you know, so as started to turn on a little bit more at the right time, he began to load his, uh, trail hip a little bit better, load the lats better. So sports specific movements, I think give the athlete a little bit more time or potentially more context, uh, to get reps, to enhance those specific skills that they're needing in their sport. And I'm just using the golf as, as an example for that. Yeah, great rationale there. I mean, I think uh, at just about every level, I can't speak for all levels, but I feel like at just about every level, you need some particular type of specificity within your training. Uh, I'm not advocating for just like, oh, just because they're a basketball player, they need to train different than a football player. There does need to be some separation there. Now, there's going to be at a high school type level like I'm dealing with at this point in time to where it coalesces probably where they're going to be doing the same things. It's like you talked about the early preparation period where we're all working through building effective movers uh, and then also building a baseline of strength. Uh, but something that like keeps it fresh for me in my programming, I think we have a similar type of programming methodology. I, I utilize block methodology. I program a lot based off of re residual training effects. Uh, and by doing that, I'm going to be dipping into these things that are more and less sports specific. Am I doing speed? strength? Am I doing a peaking phase? Am I doing uh, strength speed? Uh, what, where am I trying to dip at that particular time, especially throughout a season's time, I can keep it more general and specific at the same time without just overloading them one way 
uh, in particular. I typically like things like you, like we've alluded to a lot with these switches, things that are specific to running, because there's very few sports that you coach that aren't specific to running. I deal with more running. You alluded to a golfer. That was great uh, because I'm not as, you know, used to that golfing or something like that. I'm more used to basketball, track, football. Uh, But I tend to like to delve into things sports specific that push us towards gait and running. Yeah. I mean, I think it might be interesting to note that for whatever reason, golfers really gravitate towards my style. I think they see a lot of the rotational stuff and they go, oh, there's value there. But my point is that even though he's a golfer, I still have him sprint. I still have him do a lot of gate specific stuff. I really think that if, if the gate cycle is efficient and fluid and powerful, it's, it's going to raise all, but like, it's a very powerful training effect that will enhance most athletic skills, even if it's a swing. So for what it's worth, you know, he's yeah. still sprinting. <laughs> Absolutely, man. That's it kind of drives all the tide that lifts all boats is some of the exactly. people that I follow closely. It's a, it's a great uh, developer of power uh, and it really develops the nervous system nicely as well. So the last thing I'm going to give you an opportunity to do before we close out is I know that you have a website and you also have a social media presence. So if you would like to just kind of drop those things in there, I'm going to tag them in our show notes whenever uh, this goes live. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, uh, definitely feel free to follow me on Instagram at vital underscore pursuit underscore athletics. Uh, I post a lot of my own training content on there, some results of clients, but I try and respect their privacy. So you can kind of get a sense of what I'm working on there. And I'm happy to discuss stuff with people if they want to reach out. Uh, I got my website as well, uh, vitalpursuit.co. And I'm actually working on developing an app right now where I'm going to have some subscriptions for different programs and things like that. So social media. I'll uh, keep you guys posted on how that's progressing. Absolutely, man. Uh, It's been awesome to sit down and kind of pick your brain on this stuff, kind of talk to you uh, in a more personalized setting. We've messaged. I follow your content closely, love all this stuff. So I'd love to hear your different rationales uh, that you've presented today. Uh, I'll be excited for you to put some of those things out that you're talking about, but just continue to do what you're doing, man. I've I've really enjoyed our conversation. and I I really enjoy the content you put out. If anybody uh, out there listening now doesn't follow you, I strongly uh, suggest that they do because it's just kind of some thought provoking things. I love how a lot of your stuff is based around the weight room and you show a lot of exercises so i love that keep it up man uh pleasure talking to you today yeah i appreciate you jesse thank you for doing this and setting it up hope you enjoyed this week's episode give andrew's social media a follow to see many of the ideas discussed today in action don't forget to subscribe to keep up with all the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so